0: And gospel with Doctor Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Okay, so I. I wanted to bring you the Torah portion to Ruma today, but I wanted to bring you something fresh. But this is uh, the Torah portion, Teruma, and it seems like we have a big flip in the text. Have you noticed we've just had this thunder, lightning, hail, fire, the voice, the mountain splitting, all this stuff is happening. People feel like they're dying because they're hearing the commandments, not new, right? But all of a sudden it flips over into, okay, take for me a portion, take a contribution, and I want you to build me a sanctuary, I want you to build me a place where I can dwell with you. And as scary as his presence was at Mount Sinai, I'm not sure what they thought about that. Oh, he's going to be here all the time? They wanted him around. I'm not sure they wanted him right in the middle because that was a little terrifying. But I think what we can do is pull this together with some things we've read in the book of Revelation. I've always wondered about the pearly gates, haven't you? Taruma. Is our Torah portion, which means take me a portion. And I just want to read some little snippets out of that. So Exodus 25.1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me, from every man, whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. This is the contribution which you are to raise for them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins, dyed red, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod and for the breast piece. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them, according to all that I am going to show you, as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. So he's saying, build this because I want to be with you. I want to spend time with you. The next passage is going to be Exodus twenty five eighteen. You shall make two caravim of gold, make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one karuv at one end and one karuv at the other end. You shall make the caravim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. The caravim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. And then the Haftorah, we'll just again take a little snippet, 1 Kings six eleven through 13. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you were building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will not forsake my people Israel. We'll take a snippet out of the psalm for this week, Psalm 26, uh, starting with verse 8. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not take my soul away along with the sinners, nor my life with men of bloodshed, and whose hands is a wicked scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, redeem me, and be gracious to me. My foot stands on a level place. In the congregations, I shall bless the Lord. And from the Brichadashah, the New Testament, I gave a couple of options there. One was uh, the parable in Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16, about the workers that were hired at different times during the day. I think this one is just a little more pointed to where I want to go with the portion. It's Acts 5, 1 through 6. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. Bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God." And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Sounds a little bit like Nadav and Avihu rushing in with the strange fire, doesn't it? That's, you know, sometimes when people oversell this New Testament grace, I think, well, somebody should have notified Ananias and Sapphira, you know? It wasn't real graceful for them that day. But you have to know who you're lying to. Are you lying to your leaders? Who are you really lying to? Who are you really lying to? Here's one of my questions. When I think about the size of the ark, an emote, as you look at the measurements, an emote will be more for a grown man, I believe be from the elbow to the tip of the fingers. It's not a very big piece of furniture. Okay, if his presence is all over the world, how can it be right there? How can it be in such a tiny, tiny space? He can concentrate his power in a teeny tiny little space, and therefore your experience of it is much more powerful than just out there in the world. If you want to feel that power on an ongoing basis, you have to obey his word and contribute something with the congregation. All right, so on to the lesson. I've called it the jewel thief, (laughs) solving the mystery of the pearly gates, What we're going to use, like, where's the pearls in the Torah portion? Well, we'll find them. We'll find them. We'll get there. But I want to give you a few tools before we set out to build the tabernacle. Uh, Not everybody knows how to use hermeneutical tools. And as long as we're using words like hermeneutics, we understand why, right? So let's just say this is for your prophecy investigation toolbox. Number one, context is everything. We can't force things into places they don't go. Sometimes a tree is just a tree. Sometimes a tree is a human being. You have to know from context. So you can make some really weird things if you forget rule number one. Number two, you have the rule of first mention. Number three, the rule of progressive mention. And number four, just use a plain old Strong's definition. You know, it'll serve you well if you've got the old fashioned kind in a book or if you're using one online. It's still a good resource and it's fast. So what is first mentioned? The first mention of a word or a phrase plus its additional mentions. So let me call it progressive. If it's contextually relevant, clarify the understanding. So here's a, for instance, Exodus 25, seven through eight. He says, onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod and for the breast piece. Let them construct, construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. So there is something instrumental about the onyx stones and the setting stones to inviting his presence into the sanctuary, to getting that concentrated presence that they they wanted but were a little bit afraid to experience. So we say, okay, context is everything. Let me keep that in my head while I do my exploring. But let me find the first time onyx is mentioned. Onyx in Hebrew is shoham, and this is why you need your Strong's Dictionary, because shoham or onyx. It's something black, but it means to turn white. So we, we call that, what, a, a contronym? Something that's its own opposite? It's first mentioned in Genesis 2, and remember in Genesis 2, this is still a time when the divine presence dwelled. It walked with Adam and Eve each day. It actually says the voice walked. Just like at Mount Sinai, they saw the voice The divine presence walks. Genesis 2.10 says, Now a river flowed out of Eden. Now remember, this is the upper Eden, where the throne itself is, to water the garden in. This will be the lower Eden, where Adam and Eve are planted, and that's known as the third heaven. Paul calls it the third heaven. And from there, it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around, it circles the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Was there a lot of gold in the tabernacle? Oh, yeah. And then it mentions specifically the delium and the onyx stone are there. There's our onyx stone. But there's going to be a delium stone that's also related to where they are in the wilderness. Here's what we're told in Exodus 35, 27. The rulers brought the onyx stones and the stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece and the spice and the oil for the light, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense. The Israelites, all the men and women, whose heart moved them to bring material for all the work which the Lord had commanded through Moses to be done, brought a freewill offering to the Lord. See that little chunk is all working together? I know it says the rulers brought the onyx stones and the setting stones, but notice how it includes All the men and women whose heart moved them. So it seems like the text wants us to associate what the rulers are bringing with what every man and woman whose heart moved them were also bringing. So it says, the rulers, what are they doing? They're bringing the onyx, they're bringing the setting stones. Those stones are supposed to remind us of their first mention. In the Garden of Eden. When you look at the tabernacle, you're supposed to be thinking about the Garden of Eden. It's it's actually a reconstruction of the Garden of Eden. And there was a heart of wisdom in the Garden of Eden until the serpent became involved. So these rulers of Israel, by taking these setting stones, the people are finding them. They're giving them to the rulers, and the rulers take them to Moses and say, here are the precious stones that you need to build, rebuild, maybe, the tabernacle of the garden. So Adam and Eve, who were made to rule over the garden and the animals, they abdicated. They led mankind away from the garden. But now the rulers are leading mankind back into the garden. And at this point, we understand, because we just had a Torah portion at the foot of Mount Sinai, Israel is going to hold that light, and they are going to lead the nations back to the garden, Ultimately, through Messiah Yeshua, the living word. He's also the light of men. He was the light of the first day. So in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle, we've got a recreation of creation and the Garden of Eden. And this was based on something that Moses saw in a heavenly realm. Sounds like the third heaven or the Garden of Eden. Something that came up in class a few weeks ago was, why does it say that the law was added because of sin in Galatians 3.19? Because if that's true, are we really wasting our time? Well, here's the problem. If the instructions we're being given are leading us back to the garden and preparing us to handle his concentrated presence to be able to stand in closer places than we can now, then that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Because for that, we're already punished. We're going to die. Unless Yeshua returns, we're going to The punishment, I kick you out of Eden you fall down to the natural earth, and now you can no longer, the Garden of Eden is withdrawn a little bit. It's a realm that you can no longer see unless you just have some sort of experience. So Moses is able to see up into the garden. If he's seeing the garden, and this is a recreation of the garden, and this is the Torah, it's added because of sin, but I don't think it's to punish us. I think it's to focus our view, refocus our view. He's trying to let us get a glimpse into where we will return, back into paradise, the third heaven, the Garden of Eden. There's a a fuller revelation of the Torah that he's offering here, and it sounds like a lot of little details, like you're going to bring this and this and this, it's going to be this big, this much, and so forth, but each of these little things somehow is a way to see past the caravim that are blocking the way. It's so hard for people to see into spiritual realms because, yes, there are Keravim blocking the way. If not, that presence between the two on the ark, that would kill you. Just like it did Nadav and Aviyah. They were trying to do a good thing for a bad motive. It killed them. So it's clarifying how we can return properly and approach the Father's presence properly. And somehow these Shoham stones, the onyx and the setting stones, they're connective. They're supposed to help us understand and to see into that realm, the shoham and the delium stone. So let's go back and use our tools. Onyx or shoham stone, which is black, does mean to turn white. It was used in the high priest's shoulder pieces, and it was engraved with the names of the 12 tribes. As you see the high priest moving in his service, he is bearing the 12 tribes on his shoulders. Does that tell us that the Garden of Eden, even before there were human beings functioning, there was a proto-prophecy of the 12 tribes in the Garden with Yeshua as a priest? Remember, shoulders represent government or bearing a burden. So not only are the 12 tribes born by the priest, the high priest, and a royal priest, they are also to bear the burden of the nations in like manner. Delium was also in the Garden of Eden. It was that manna that fell in the wilderness that had the appearance of delium. So was the delium in the Garden of Eden or was it in the wilderness? Yes. And it looked like something from the Garden of Eden. It looked like something from the third heaven. It was kind of shiny. It fell with the dew. They say it was actually encased. It was like in little suitcases of dew. And then as the dew would evaporate, it would look kind of flaky, like coriander seed. So let's go back to Genesis 25 too. tell the children of Israel to raise a contribution for me from every, or you can translate it, any person whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. Don't take it from somebody whose heart isn't moved because if their heart isn't moved, any contribution they give you will be for their own glory. So everyone, anyone could bring a terumah offering if the heart moved them. And when the heart is involved, don't we cooperate a whole lot better with other people? We just happen to be different people working toward the same goal. And the text, it's thought that the text is telling us where the leaders found those stones. Midrash Shabbat to Exodus 33 says, Every person who gathered manna might find a precious stone or a pearl as he or she gathered each morning except for Shabbat. Well, if you wanted to find precious stones you would go out and gather manna in the morning. And I don't know if it was like, when sometimes we have treasure hunts, and if somebody finds something in a certain area, doesn't everybody rush over there to try to find it too? But apparently, out there with the delium, there were also concealed precious stones and pearls. And you might, as you gathered in the morning, run across a precious stone. In other words, he's saying, raise a contribution for me, but I'm actually gonna give it to you. And they say, well, why pearls? Why do we think there were pearls out there? Well, it's thought that the pearls Pearls were used in the holy garments that were worn in the Mishkan. And then if this is true, if the rabbis are true, you know, if they're right on about this, then it makes sense why we would see the gates of Jerusalem as made of pearl, because it represents something they did together every morning as a congregation. Whether they gathered or didn't gather, they still did it together. So Revelation gives us a couple of references here, 2121 and then 2114. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Already sounding a whole lot like our tabernacle, isn't it? But notice that the gates were 12. And how many tribes do we have? 12. Now, a gate in ancient times was a place of judgment, The elders would gather at the gates to rule on court issues, to clarify things. Basically, your city leaders were there at the gates, and you could not pass into or out of the city without their noticing. If something was going on in their city, they wanted to know about it, because they were responsible for the sin in that city. Wouldn't you hate to be a gatekeeper in Las Vegas? (laughs) Nobody going to volunteer to be an elder in that city. Uh Uh-uh, they on their own. They even had to make right if there was, say, a murder within such a distance from their city. Maybe it didn't happen in their city, but it happened outside of their city, and it was closer to their city than the next city. They still had to go sacrifice to make that right. They were responsible for what came in and out, and therefore it meant that they would bear the sin. Yikes. If they didn't maintain right ruling in that city. Our next reference, uh, verse 14, it says it had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. So that's consistent with what we understand from ancient times, that in what we see as New Jerusalem, that the 12 tribes, one will be stationed at each gate, and they will judge those who come into and out of that gate. And if the new Jerusalem is as at least semi-supernatural as we believe it is, it's going to be at least as supernatural as walking in the cloud where things didn't wear out, where food was miraculous, where the presence was so concentrated. Try to imagine the two Jerusalems marrying again, the spiritual and natural realm. It's going to be so holy, it's going to say holiness on the bells of the horses that's pretty holy. So these 12 tribes, anybody that's trying to come in, and we know at this point in the millennium, the nations will be coming to Jerusalem, at least for the Feast of Sukkot. I think they will try to come at other of the three pilgrimage feasts, but they're going to have to talk to them and find out, are you really fit to go in here yet? Don't pull out that we'll go boldly into the throne room scripture. Context is everything, right? I don't want to let you in here and kill you because you're not ready. Let's make your teacher make sure your teachers have instructed you. And if not, let's just go sit out here on a hill and let's listen to Yeshua teach. If you need remediation, there's plenty of teachers out here. The Torah is going to go forth. Don't worry. We'll get you ready to go in there. But they want to make sure your heart is okay. Otherwise, you will have a heart attack, among other things. So we've got 12 foundational precious stones in that city, engraved with the names of the 12 apostles. Each gate, it says, is just a single pearl. So it's like each of those tribes is one thing. They're together. They're not just on the same page. They're in the same gate. It's indicating that there is a unity of each tribe within the family of Israel. These tribes will guard the gates. They're going to make sure that proper entry is made. And, um, you know, that entry, like, how will they assess people coming in and out? There has to be some criteria. There's only one document. It's the Torah. These are people who have to know the word. And as, you know, difficult as it is, sometimes to read a passage like this, it just lists of things. It's not wasted time. Later, you might understand why you need to know why there were these types of skins and this kind of goat hair and so forth. At that time, you'll see more. You'll understand more why you needed to know that. Because if you're, you know, it even says you're going to judge angels. There's an angel associated with each of these gates. And if you tell that angel, don't let them pass. Get in front of them like they're a donkey with a false prophet riding it. (laughs) Stop them. Save their lives. I imagine he'll do it at that time. So we do have to judge according to the manna. It's the living bread of the Torah. We know that living bread is Yeshua. He's the bread of heaven. He's the word. He's the criteria. So if we're going to approach Jerusalem to worship, to experience that concentrated power of the upper garden coming down, we're going to have to pass through those gates. And just as Yeshua rules us, and the world. We are there to help him, should we so merit, to help judge those who are coming in. But they're saying every person, going back to our text, anybody, everybody, if they're out there gathering manna, might chance upon a precious stone. And the text in Genesis 2.11, going back to the Garden of Eden, remember it says that the rivers savav, it means they circled, that's why I wanted you to see the motion graphic, how they went round and round. In the same way, it says that the manna fell around sobev, sobev, the camp. So in the same way that the rivers circled Eden, where we find the Delium stone, where we find the Shoham stone, it's just the same way out there in the wilderness. The Delium and the Shoham stones, the pearls... The precious setting stones, they are falling because the manna is like the water. The bread comes out of the water, right? And so it's circling. And they say that this is what ties the two things together. Exodus 16, 21 says, They gathered manna morning by morning by morning. In Hebrew that's baboker baboker, baboker baboker. Morning by morning, every person as much as he should eat. But when the sun grew hot, it would melt. When you see phrases repeated, especially in the same context, it makes a difference. So if we slide over to Exodus 36.3, talking now about the contributions that they took up. It says, They received from Moses all the contributions which the sons of Israel had brought to perform the work. This is going to Bezalel and Aholiab as they're constructing the tabernacle. In the construction of the sanctuary. They continued bringing to him freewill offerings every morning. Baboker, baboker. So you gather your manna, baboker, baboker. And you take your contributions to the sanctuary, baboker, baboker. And so it was thought as they're out gathering their manna, their bread, they would happen upon a pearl or a precious stone. And they would call for the leader, come take this and deliver it to Moses for the building of the Mishkan. Now, could you have, if people are concentrating on their manna, they may not see you put a pearl in your pocket. But they said at that time, they were in such a state of unity. Isn't this like this little window where Israel finally did something right? They weren't fighting with each other in Moses. So they would call the leader like, I found it. Or they would take that stone to the leader and and hand it to them. It was a leader of their particular tribe. They didn't want credit for what they found. They said, no, this is for the tribe. This is for the good of everyone. And so on behalf of the whole tribe, remember our half-shekel lesson last week? You're only a half. You take this, and it becomes part of our whole tribe's contribution to the sanctuary. That's unity. And that's a foundational quality that we're going to have to have. If we expect to rule and reign with Messiah Yeshua in the Father's kingdom, we can't be people looking for credit. We can't be diverting his glory to ourselves. Look what I found. Look what I found. What about, look what he showed me. Look what he gave me. Look what I nearly had to trip over to miss because he stuck it right there in my path. How can I take credit for that? I'm just out there doing my work. Am I really that smart? Am I really that skilled? Or does he really love me so much that he put it right in my path? And he gave me a sense of honor in allowing me to pass it on to my tribal leader to give to Moses for the good of the entire family. That's the type of unity that's worthy of the pearly gates. So now let's go back to it. You, you, guys, you guys spotted it already in Acts 2.43. It's referring to what precedes Ananias and Sapphira. It says they raised a contribution. They sold their property. And Peter tells them, wasn't it yours? Could you pick that pearl up and put it in your pocket if you wanted to? You could. And you could just tell him I found a pearl and I'm keeping it. It's, it's yours. You found it. But if you know it's his and you found it. You might go and say, do we have enough pearls today? Would it be okay if I kept this one? Keeping it a secret was the problem, and making it seem as though you gave. That was the problem, because it's about that concentrated presence in the sanctuary. Anytime there's a new move of the Holy Spirit, notice how people get killed when they try to get in front of it. I mean, I can tell you personal stories. But here in Acts 2.43, it tells us what preceded that. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, just like at Mount Sinai. They had just come through Shavuot, hadn't they? Just like the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. It's taking us back to our Torah portion from last week. They stood at the foot of Mount Sinai and thought they were getting killed. It says, Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Well, they say at Mount Sinai, everybody got healed. That's why all the Jewish hospitals are named Mount Sinai. (laughs) All those who had believed were together. And had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Now they're out there picking up pearls in the wilderness. Day by day, kind of reminds you of Babokir Babokir, doesn't it? Continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread, went from manna to bread, from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Weren't they taking their meals with gladness out there gathering manna? Sincerity of heart, whoever's heart moves him. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the dynamic that Ananias and Sapphira walk into. They have a pearl. They sold some property they had. We don't know what the property was, but they sold it. And then they handed over to Peter as though that's that's the full amount. All they had to say is, here's four-fifths. Here's half. We choose not to give you the whole amount. Or they just had to say, this is how much I'm giving you. They don't have to lie about what the full price is. Just say, this is what I'm giving you. But see, it's a, it's a new move of the Holy Spirit. And they should have known because it occurred at Shavuot that there would be consequences and repercussions for playing around with the Holy Spirit. It will knock you dead. The closer you get to the Holy of Holies, the more prepared you have to be. The more in unity you have to be with his will in your congregation. We we know that the contributions, it says in Acts 5, 1, would be laid at the apostles' feet. That's what it says. Their leaders, they would take their contributions, lay them at the feet. And so then they could buy bread for others. Not everybody had as much as other people. And so they would take from those who had more and share it with those who had less. The sanctuary was for everyone. You could equally experience that powerful presence of the sanctuary. You were permitted. As long as you met the, you know, the purity requirements to get that close, you could go in. Didn't make you a priest. Didn't make you a Levite. But you could share up to a certain point. Anybody could. Every man, every woman. You say, did women bring sacrifices? If their husbands, they didn't have husbands or they weren't available, disabled, they did in temple times. But why would some have need when others had enough to sell? Why would some people find pearls and precious stones when others went out that day and they didn't find any? Something that is very difficult in a congregation is accommodating the wide range of background knowledge in the Word. You might have somebody just got saved outside on your sidewalk before the service. That person sitting there, they don't know thing one. And sometimes that's a good thing. (laughs) Sometimes it's better than I'm coming in from First Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalian, or whatever. But you also have people that they might be more learned than the rabbi or the pastor or the the elder, whoever's doing the teaching that particular day. Well, I know more than that. It does take diligence and it does take practice to study the word. You need a practiced eye. Not everybody knows Rules of hermeneutics so that they don't do crazy applications and interpretations. And, you know, that delium, it was glittery too. You might miss a precious stone if you're out there looking. I know I have looked for four-leaf clovers all my life and cannot see them. Never. Not like sometimes, never. And I knew a guy who was a horse trainer... He could be sitting up on a horse and see it. He's like, there's a four-leaf. I'm like, "Uh uh-uh. He's like, yeah, it's right there, it's right there. Some people can see it, some people can't. He had a trained eye or a gift, I don't know. Is there a four-leaf clover gift? We're getting too close to St. Patrick's Day to talk about that, right? (laughs) There's a lot of manna out there that's glittering. So we don't know, was it just like luck? They just stumbled into the right place? Or did the Father actually place those precious things for them to find and test each heart at least once to see what they would do with that precious stone? It might be hard to see a pearl when it, you know, the delium turned flaky and white. Some people are going to be better than others at finding the pearls of the word. But here's a miracle of the manna. Every person had enough to satisfy their appetite no matter how much they could or couldn't gather. Exodus sixteen eighteen says, When they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess. What do we do towards, between Pesach and Shavuot? We count the omer. He who had gathered little had no lack, and every man gathered as much as he should eat. It didn't matter what you gathered. It was just enough. But would that miracle have happened if they had not obeyed the instructions to gather in the morning? It would melt. You'd lose the opportunity. So many times we have opportunities as a congregation to come together and we wait, we delay too long to come into unity and the opportunity melts. We'll never pass that way again. Hopefully there'll be more manna in the morning and we can try again. But their unity in seeking the word, that manna kept falling, and there was no lack. You know, some people, they've known the word all their lives. In fact, do we have anybody, well, I know we probably do here, pregnant? (laughs) What are they hearing right now? The word. It's a little watery, but, (laughs) you know, they're hearing the word. We all have maybe, hopefully, been blessed with godly Christian parents. Maybe took us to Sunday school, taught us the word, read the word. I know in granddaddy's house, you didn't go visit him if you weren't prepared to do Bible study and devotionals every single morning. He had 10 kids. Even when they were adults and had children of their own, they had to sit there and do devotionals. So they'd always wait till after breakfast to go visit. (laughs) Maybe we've had godly parents. We grew up knowing the word. Some people are descended from families with long histories of learning the Torah. Like the Jews, it says they have the oracles of God. And Paul says, this is an advantage to being Jewish. They have the oracles. They've grown up in it. A long family history. But in a congregation, we have to make room for the one who's come recently to the covenant. The one who formerly was a stranger. And they're just now kind of putting on these maybe new salvation clothes. Or maybe these new robes of righteousness clothes. They're just learning about the Torah as something that is valid. Something that's not done away with by grace. Well, here's what. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in 2.12. He says, Remember that that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of, Of Messiah. You've been brought near. You were far off. And now you're coming near. We were out in Egypt. But now he's saying. Build me a sanctuary. I want you to come near. He says I'm your father. Don't you fathers like. To have your children come near. Especially on Shabbat. You like to get them in there. And bless them. Let them sit on your lap. Lean up against you fall asleep, tell you what they did that week. Who are these strangers? The Greek word there is xenos, and it means a foreigner, a stranger, an alien from a person or thing. Somebody without the knowledge of. Doesn't that fit people who are newly saved? They just don't have the knowledge of everything we know. We're using a brand new language to them. That's so what used to always throw me. Somebody said, oh, well, he was just in the flesh. And when you're a little kid, you're like, aren't we all? <laughs> you don't see me? <laughs> it was like it was a bad thing to be in the flesh. And I'm like, well, if you're not in the flesh, aren't you dead? I don't. Sometimes we have to share our language. This is what the Torah is. This is who Yeshua is. You speak to them in a known tongue. And then you teach them the language. Then you start sharing the pearls. And it can be something that's new and unheard of. You know, for most Jews, it's new and unheard of for people like us to be keeping Torah. You want to blow their minds? Go to Israel and start talking about Shabbat and eating kosher and keeping the feasts. And don't act like a tourist. You will blow their minds. Because like, no, no, that's unheard of to you. No, it's not. You don't have knowledge of this. Yes, I do. I read the same commentaries you do in Hebrew. And that does blow their minds, by the way. So let's look at another instance where we can be part of a congregation, but yet there's a little heart issue. And that's going to be in Leviticus 10.1, because Ananias and Sapphira's situation sounded so much like this, it can't be a coincidence. No kowinky dinks, Right. Now Nadav and Avihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire, that word there is Zarah, before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. What did they do wrong? Well, number one, Aaron had yet to offer the incense. That was a special day. And Aaron, who was the high priest, who wore the high priest's garments, it was his job, his obligation. He was the ruler. He was the one. He was supposed to go in and offer that fire. But they got caught up in the ecstasy. They wanted to keep the pearls. They wanted to keep the delium stone. And it was disrespectful to draw near in disobedience. It was disrespectful to bypass their father. They rushed ahead of him. They wanted the glory of the incense service focused on themselves, not the appointed leader for that day. Would they do it later? Sure. The Torah makes provision for the sons of the priest to take over that service, but not that day. Sometimes we grab a pearl and we rush out there and we want the honor and the glory for that pearl and he's saying, not today. Not today. Just wait. Just wait. Yes, they had an inner fire and they really kind of died for a good thing. They wanted to get close to that presence. They thought they could handle it. Sometimes we're doing things with the Torah that we think we can handle and we are way over our heads. We have not yet attained that level of maturity in the word, but more importantly, the heart hasn't caught up to the text. They were seeking glory, but it wasn't bound to the the benefit of their congregation. When we obey, there is a benefit to our congregation. And when even our acts of obedience, forget the sins we're doing that are bringing shame to the congregation... Just set those to the side. Let's just assume those bring shame to Yeshua and our congregation. If they find out where we go to congregation and they see us sinning, just assume they're going to cast everyone else at that congregation in that light. And let's just hope that it's not too heinous a sin. But our sins get around faster than our good deeds sometimes. So when we do what we do, even with a good thing, It has to be for the good also of the congregation. See, it went through the leader. They took those precious pearls to the leader. They said, I found something valuable here. I'm giving it to you. You decide where it needs to go. Moses might say, hey, that's good. That's good. We got everything we need. Just give it back to whoever found it. They might say, you use it for something to benefit that whole tribe. But when we're doing it for our own glory and for our own joy, then it's diminishing the glory and joy not just of the Father in heaven who's going to be a little disappointed in our behavior that he can't call us Pearl today. It's going to diminish the joy of the entire congregation. It's going to diminish the glory of the entire congregation. Whatever congregation you go to, You want it to be known in the neighborhood, in the town, in the city, as having a good reputation. Where people work together, where they don't gossip about each other. Where we don't brag because I found three pearls this week. They haven't found a one. They must be sinning. There must be a secret sin. Maybe not. Maybe that was your test and you just failed. Maybe he's just testing them with patience. They're having to wait on the third day for it to be good. And sometimes it's like, I can do that better than they can. Who made him the leader? Who made her the leader? You know what? Scripture says, I don't know I he did. He's <laughs> like... How could that person be president? Well, he's doing what he's doing. I don't understand it either. But we have to understand that he's bringing events along a certain path, even when he uses people that we think we've got more skills, more insight. And sometimes when we think that someone else is getting the glory we're entitled to, we just have to remind ourselves That if that person is genuine, if they're working out of a sincere heart, that glory is the Father's anyway. It's not theirs. They don't even want that glory. All they want is not to get in the way of His. You realize if we take the words literally of have no other gods before me, in Hebrew, more literally, it says, don't be a God on my face. He says, get out of my face. You're blocking my glory. People can't see my glory if you're putting your mask on me. Get off of my face. Let my glory shine through you. If it's for our honor and glory, we've put a mask on him. And people are not seeing his glory, just ours, which is deficient. So when we do honor a person, it's just to honor the Father's instruction and his patterns. He's testing us. And you know what? Some were more prepared. We talk about the pearl, it brings everybody to the same place at the end of the day. Exodus 35, 23 says, Every man who had in his possession blue and purple and scarlet material, and fine linen and goat's hair, and ram skins dyed red, and porpoise skins brought them. You're like, they just had that stuff laying around the tent? Goat hair I get. But this stuff, you would have to go out of your way to prepare it. I mean, you just go in Walmart back then and find this sort of stuff. I mean, you have to go down to what? A lot to find porpoise skins? That's a bit of a trek. But when that phrase, who had in his possession is used, it's thought that it indicated that way back there, When Jacob put his blessing on the sons, there were certain sons that understood from what he said that they would be building a sanctuary. And way back then, they prepared things, and it was handed down from family to family, just like some of us have a background in the Word. Our family's going way back. They were solid in the Word. They understood They knew that the presence would one day dwell among them. But some, it says, everyone who could make a contribution of silver and bronze brought the Lord's contribution. A little less prepared, but what do they have? They say, okay, it's time to build a sanctuary. You know, this wasn't necessarily handed down to me from my ancestors, but I do have some silver and bronze, such as I have give I thee day, right? They took what they had and contributed, and it was all good. If you were bringing rare porpoise skins, it was no better an offering than the one who brought the silver and bronze he had in his, probably not a pocket, but maybe a pouch. Okay, and yes, there's other places. Exodus thirty-five twenty-four. Every man who already had in his possession acacia wood. Now, were they just wandering around with acacia wood? You got a lumber yard on your ox cart. What's going on? But it's thought that certain ones way back when understood Jacob's blessing in Genesis forty-eight twenty-one. He said, "Behold, I am about to die, and God will be with you." That he was prophesying of the building of the sanctuary. So some of them went out, yes, and started cutting acacia wood, finding porpoise skins, dyeing ram skins red. It didn't matter. If you didn't see it coming, it matters that you were there. He says, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. The father wants to dwell with all his children, not just those with a long family pedigree of preparation in his word, not just the ones that can find the pearls and the precious stones really, really fast. Those last hour workers got paid the same. And I think that's the clue to understanding why those first century believers brought their extra contributions to the apostles. I think it's coming straight out of our Torah portion. Laying at the feet of the apostles so that everybody has enough. Because if we do this, we'll pull down that concentrated power. Of the sanctuary, and it was already happening. Like, we don't want to lose this. It already says there were signs and miracles and wonders that were happening. Like, how do we hold on to this? We take care of one another. That's the miracle. That's the miracle. We want to make a place for the presence to dwell among us. We don't want to lie to the Holy Spirit about what we have or don't have. It's in your hand. You can hold on to it or you can give it to the congregation. The main thing is to be honest about what you're giving. It says, don't appear empty handed. It doesn't matter. If you brought a little copper coin, Or if you're a sharp-eyed manna picker and you've got a pocket full of diamonds, it's all the same. It's for the tribe. So a final thought, the miracle of a congregation is that it makes room for manna eaters with different capacities to absorb what they're learning. There's a diversity of souls in any congregation, from the one in the womb, that the angel's still teaching them, to the elder men and women, those of us who are a little longer in the tooth. We've got some gray hair of experience combined with the Word. There's everything in between. But we can all work together to produce unity and purpose. And seriously, that's a miracle. you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry go to thecreationgospel.com You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook and our YouTube channel.